D3 Nationals three years ago, Portland Track Festival, Olympic Trials. That's not a natural progression for most people that are standing on that starting line. Hey guys, welcome back to another edition of our podcast. This is the follow-up from the one that we recorded when we were in Eugene, uh, talking about the Olympic Trials 10K for both Noah and Aaliyah. I'm here with both of them again. Hey there. Hello. Obviously, the the trials for both of them did not go as we discussed on the pre-race why, podcast. God, why? But... I think it's important to to address, obviously, what happened, what the experience was like, and what they have to look forward to in the future um, so they can prepare for those types of experiences again. Aaliyah, let's start with you. What was the pre-race vibe going in? We obviously discussed your foot a little bit on the pre-race podcast, which ended up being more of a factor during the race than you probably would have envisioned or liked it to be. Yeah. Um, so, so I dislocated my cuboid in my, in my right foot on Wednesday, right before I flew out to Eugene. And luckily, luckily Richie was able to adjust it back in, which provided a lot of immediate relief, but it just was, our timeline was so condensed that it wasn't quite enough. You know, Thursday I took mostly off of running, tried to run a little bit and it still was pretty sore. Friday I was able to run a couple miles pain-free and even do a couple strides. And that was super encouraging. And I kind of went from one emotional end of the spectrum to the other, where I was really worried about it to where I I got back to really thinking that I had a shot at running well again. Um, but then, you know, Saturday, Saturday morning, the day of the race, I, I got up and it was throbbing a little bit more than I wanted to admit, but it was almost this thing where I didn't want to vocalize it out loud because you're still trying to get yourself to the start line and really trying to be in the most positive mental state that you can be. And so to a certain extent, you're just seeing what your body's going to allow you to do. When I was warming up, I noticed my foot was kind of dragging a little bit every once in a while, which definitely isn't normal. And I made it through about, I started the race and made it about halfway through before stepping off. Um, it just, you know, just wasn't quite race, race ready yet. Did you still think at that time when you, when you felt your foot dragging, you would still be able to still race in the way that you wanted? I think you tell yourself, you tell yourself that you're going to get on the starting line and, um, and do the best that you can every single time. I, I know it sounds really basic, but that's what I kind of try to boil down most of my race plans to, you know, at the end of the day, we're stepping on the start line and we're putting out the best that we have on that day. And you hope that you hope that that package is something that you'll be proud of. And you know, there's, there's so many factors that are out of your control that you try not to worry about them. Of course, it's hard if you're feeling something physical, not to think about it a little bit. I guess I tried not to focus on it too much. You know, I knew, I knew that it could be a factor from Wednesday on. And so I guess by that point, I was trying to give myself the best chance possible to run well. And I still knew that I had a ton of fitness behind me. Um, I pride myself on generally being a tough runner. So that was kind of what I was focusing on the days leading into the race. You know, they weren't ideal circumstances, but that, you know, maybe I could tough it out and still run really well doing it. Were the pre-race jitters that of excitement and anxiousness to get started with the race or more uncertainty of how you thought the foot would respond or a little bit of both? Uh, Probably a little bit of both. I think 
I think the foot took away from the pre-race jitters in the days leading up to the race for sure. Which could be a good thing. Which could be a good thing. And that was something that I vocalized. My perspective shifted drastically from being nervous and like just a ball of nerves before the race rather back shifted back on Friday to just being thankful that I could run relatively pain-free and that I felt like I had a shot at racing the next day. Yeah. You were getting pretty excited after your pre-race strides because there was very little discomfort comparative to the day before. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, like I said, you just, you kind of try to have to focus on all of the positives and I think you almost have to be prepared for something unexpected to pop up race week and even race morning. You know, this was a rather unfortunate one, but you just, you use it as a learning experience and you try to, you try to move forward the best you can. And Noah, you had a little bit of Achilles stuff going on. That wasn't so much an issue going into the race um, last Friday. Uh, just for everyone listening, when we're recording this, it's now a week and a half post-trials. Um, I think I was I was mentally pretty ready to go. I mean, we touched on my Achilles a little bit. Um, I think we may have touched on it in our previous podcast. But by the time the race rolled around, it like it was still a little sore, but it's not anything that I felt like would inhibit me. I also developed a bit of a sore throat before the race, but I didn't let that get in my head either. Um, I've always heard that you get like one really good effort still, even if you're coming down with something. And so I didn't let that psych me out because, you know, at the end of everything, the race is going to happen at the time it's scheduled and, and you got to be there for it. So I wasn't really thinking about those things. I think warming up for the race, I felt like even, yeah, in my two mile jog before the race, I felt like I was going to be on the line and, and ready to run well. Talk about the excitement of going into Hayward Field, and you, when you got to the track, I was I was in the med tent when you first showed up, and like you said, you wanted to go peek your head in the stadium and just see how many people were there. Yeah, I was absolutely uh, wide-eyed. Um, you, we get these athlete passes, and so we're in the back, and you know, I'm I'm seeing all these athletes that I really respect and admire, and I'm fans of, and you can hear the crowd in Hayward from behind it. Um, and so I was hearing that roar and feeling that electricity even from outside the stadium. So it, it, it's a scene to take in for sure. And I was, uh, I was really excited to do that. Were you nervous? <sighs> That's something I've kind of been struggling with since like, was I nervous or was I not? I was excited. Um, I, Aaliyah, was he nervous? He he may have vocalized yes yeah yeah that's <laughs> which true. is fair which is I I nervous I was nervous too you know yeah and actually Ali is probably the better one to answer that question was I nervous because I'm not like at this point in my running career I'm not even sure what nerves exactly feel like anymore um, they take on different forms I think they're not just that butterfly in the stomach anymore they can they can cover a wide range of emotions but I I do remember like race morning when you you went off to work at the at the tent and it was. In, in the med tent and then it was just a Lee and I like at, when you left that's when it really sunk in for me and I felt I felt nervous at that moment yeah I was a little bit worried of us departing each other in the morning yeah um because you guys dropped me off obviously at the track when you guys went to go do your shakeout and as Aaliyah told me later you were almost a deer in headlights laying down to take your nap. Didn't really sleep, which you, you verbalized after. Yeah. I mean, we just operate as such a cohesive unit, I think. Um, codependency at its best. Codependency. And, I, and I'm just so the used to... The parent was gone. Yeah. I mean, I'm just so used to to your guys' presence to keep me level-headed. And Aaliyah was still there, and that, that helped. But, like, I just... The weight of the day set in at that moment. 
for me. Which was good practice because I won't be able to be at all of your competitions in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it was my first big championship. Um, you know, the marathon trials are a different animal. Like, this was a bigger deal in my mind. And, you know, I was a little bit out of my depth. And I think I can look back on it and and acknowledge that as one of the factors why my race didn't go well. I've identified three, which we can talk about later. I went back and, and worked on my log today. Yeah, I was nervous. Yeah, I was nervous. Well, and one of the things that I think when I was – so I've already edited the the pre-trials podcast. And when I was going back and listening to some of that, um, you talked about the Portland Track Festival and some of the uncertainty going in because – you hadn't been hitting workouts the way you necessarily wanted. You knew what you had to do on that day, but you weren't really sure how the outcome would measure up to what the expectation was going in. So you showed up at the track, you were a little bit early, you kind of just laid around, you went to go on your warm up, And then when you went to the starting line, you kind of gave us just a little bit of a fist pump. And you said, all right, I'm going to go and do what I have to do. The way, obviously, before the track 10k at Hayward, you, you looked pretty fired up to me. You were jumping up and down, you were clapping, you were high-fiving people. You ran over to where your parents were in the stand to wave to them in the stand. It's just a different level of excitement, obviously based on the circumstances of the event being Olympic trials versus being a track 10k in front of a thousand people Olympic trials. Now you're in front of 22 to 30,000 people. So it's, you have every right to be nervous, obviously. And some of the things that we talked about was those experiences help form your ability to handle that type of stress in the future. Yeah. And I agree with you. Like in my defense, I have run well being excited and you know, and and let's, and I'm always excited to race. Well, and let's preface that you don't have to defend anything because you, you have been a since the time that I've been coaching you, a fairly dependable athlete with the way that you approach practice, the way you approach races, but you're still finding yourself in uncharted territory. And we're learning after the fact of how you need to manage those situations when they approach. Yeah. And that's a, that's a good, that's a good point. I think I just perform well when there are no expectations. I mean, granted we had expectations in Portland, but But it's you and I discussing it. Yeah. And we'll go out. And then when you're on the trials 10 K line, there's expectations no matter who you are on that line, because you have earned a spot there. Even your internal expectations are, you're going to better that ranking against the best guys in the country. First time you've lined up, with Bernard Lagat. Yeah. That was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. You're standing next to Ben Tur on the starting line and photobombing Galen Rupp on NBC's coverage. I was. Take that, Galen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so going back now, Aliyah, talk about the race itself. So gun goes off, you find yourself in that lead pack, and you felt pretty comfortable for a while. Yeah, I mean the pace it's championship style racing and it was decently warm on the day we were running at around 11 a.m. The women were decently warm. The pace wasn't crawling, but it definitely wasn't out of my comfort zone. And I, yeah, was, I think your I, guys first lap was 75 and then you guys settled into 77s for a while. Yeah. And I think we even had some 78s in there, mm-hmm. like just really manageable stuff where, but honest. I never, it was honest. Yeah. Yeah. yeah on it. Not, not crawling, but it was the type of pace that, I was excited because I felt like we were we were moving decently, but I also was so confident that it was a pace that I should be running and that I belonged in that group. And I think that's a really cool feeling to go out, um, you know, at the Olympic trials with the other best 10K, 10K women in the nation and um, know that, feel like you belong in that top group. And at the time, it was a pretty big lead pack. 
and it was a little I think bit. There was about thirteen of you guys. Yeah, it was it was kind of chaotic. It was bunched up, and you know because there were a bunch of us that were very capable of running that pace, and um, nerves are definitely high at Olympic trials, and everyone wants to make sure that their positioning is is going well and whatnot. So for a while, that's that took a lot of my focus. Uh, but in order to run without a significant amount of pain on my foot. I had to run very much on the ball of my foot on the right side. Uh, not even midfoot and heel striking really was was pretty painful. And so <laughs> running a 10K on the ball of your foot, like strictly on the ball of your foot, I don't, I don't know if it's possible. I, so essentially my calf really started wearing out and I started kind of feeling like a hitch in my stride where my knee would give out a little bit just because the calf was so fatigued. And I found myself focusing more on the discomfort of that than I was on racing. And uh, yeah, and it was a pretty drastic shift from when Nora and I were in the stands and could definitely tell when, when your foot was starting to flare up because you would be running 77, 78 with that lead group. And then all of a sudden you were down at 84, 85, like immediately. Yeah. It was one turn and you were off that pack. Yeah. And that's then not, that's not fitness. Right. And then it, you went, I think it was a, another lap and a half. And by the end of that next lap and a half, you were noticeably favoring that side. And then you ended up dropping out right around 5k, I believe. Yeah. I was about halfway through. And I think that's, I was, I guess I was expecting to feel it at some point in the race. It was kind of a matter of when it was, if it was a mile to go, I feel like you can get it out a little bit more, but it was so significant so early. I really just didn't feel like I could race well on it. And also I was legitimately worried about what I was doing long-term. If I was really messing something else up, it just did not, did not feel good. And I really felt like it wasn't allowing me to run. Yeah. We um, saw that in the women's steeple with Leo O'Connor with a lap to go. Yeah. She, I mean, it was found out after the fact that she tore her plantar fascia, obviously. Which is painful. Yeah. And still, <laughs> still gutted it for that out. one last lap. But like, another 5k would have been a little bit much to, to ask at that point. It even took me another couple laps, even after I think it was pretty evident that something was happening to drop out just because I really, I personally just don't like, I don't want to set the precedent of dropping out of races for myself. Um, that's really important to me because you're going to have more rough races than you're going to have amazing races, I think overall. And it's just, I think it's a slippery slope. And, and everyone's different. Some people can drop out of races and be all right and bounce back just fine. Uh, but for me, it's a real struggle. And even afterwards, knowing, really knowing that it was probably the responsible thing to do for the health of my foot and like longevity of a fall season, I just still kind of struggled with like, oh, should I, should I have dropped out? Should I have stayed in? Was I just being weak? Um, so that's, yeah, it's not something I enjoy doing. I think the last time I dropped out of a race was in high school when I also had a fracture. Um, and this, this didn't end up being a fracture, thank goodness. But I'm, I'm at the end of the day, I'm glad I dropped out, but it still wasn't an easy decision, even though it, it felt a little obvious during the race. Okay. And now Noah, for you, gun goes off. How did the race kind of unfold in your eyes? It was, it was hard. So I kind of, I kind of mentioned you guys went out a little bit slower. We went out slower. So I kind of mentioned earlier that I had three like factors that I think played into me having a bad race. The first one was overemphasis on the event. I think we touched on that already. The second one, which we also kind of touched on was 
I was feeling like I was starting to come down with a cold. And these and these are all factors that I think played in to different extents. I'm not blaming any one thing more than any other thing. So that's the second one. So we went out through like through the mile like 440, mm-hmm. um, which for me should have felt totally manageable. Mm-hmm. But it didn't. Like, I came through and I felt like I was working pretty hard, which brings factor three in, which is panic. Um, So I went through in 440 feeling like I was laboring harder than a 440 should. And at that point, you start to have a lot of negative thoughts creep in. And that's one serious lesson I think I'll take away from this race is could I have, you know, maybe still not performed well, but could I have performed better if I would have been able to talk myself through that better. You know, yeah, because by, by, and I'll, I'll be honest to a certain extent, by the end of that 10K, I mean, you were running long run pace. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely yeah. at paces that you, you've hit for long distances at the end of the day. Where we saw the final result standings, you obviously could have been right in that mix. Obviously, it was a hot day, so it's hard to assume that, but. Yeah, I mean, I think on my best day, on my best day, I am in that mix. And when um, I when I say in the mix, I don't necessarily mean mix of making the team, yeah. but mix of being competitive within the overall. Yeah, game. competing well. Yeah, um, which I wasn't. I was a total non-factor in the race, and so I think I gutted it out through two miles, and I was still hanging on to that pack, but but the pace felt too hot. Like the idea of four more miles uh, was daunting to me. You were looking um, back more than you were looking forward. I was looking back. I was I was nervous about where I was. I was nervous that I was pretty much at the end of the pack and really felt like I was sprinting. And um, I'm assuming in that moment too, like the other thoughts go through your head. Like you did, you've done a lot to get yourself to that point. Your parents are there watching. I'm there watching. You know, you have friends back home watching on TV. Mm-hmm. You you have a pretty big fan following just in terms of what you've been able to accomplish in such a short period of time just with friends and teammates back at home that it's natural for those thoughts to start creeping in when things don't go well. Yeah, and it's crushing. Like, I knew where you were. I saw you every lap. I knew where my parents were. And as soon as that takes you out of race mode, which for me happened around a mile, honestly, mm-hmm. you're done. And I was done at that point. And yeah, it's the, tough to regroup at that point. It's hard. And yeah. honestly, like, could I have physically gone faster that day? I don't know. But my head wasn't in the place to get the most out of my body after that. So how do you change that in the future? I mean, one, we're getting used to the big events. We've been to a couple now this year. So that takes care of the overemphasis. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever role the sickness played, like, that's a one-off. Um, if it played a role at all, you know, I felt like it did just with how drained I was. But that's a one-off. And then panic, like, that's experience. Yeah, um, yeah we talked about, I mean, you and I talked about it a lot after your race, how your last three 10Ks were D3 Nationals three years ago, Portland Track Festival, Olympic Trials. That's not a natural progression for most people that are standing on that starting line. Yeah. And I just need, you know, next time I'm there, I'm going to be confident that I belong. Mm-hmm. And you'll, you'll have a lot more 10Ks between now true. and hopefully the next trials. And when things go poorly, I'm going to be more confident in my physical ability to override that Um, or just my mental strength being there for me in that moment when it wasn't at at the trials, um, which is like kind of a sad thing to admit. But um, because I wanted it to be there so bad, um, but I just I just couldn't do it. Well, and I think one of the important points to touch on, too, and this goes for both Aaliyah and yourself 
you guys are still trying to come into your own as professional athletes and you're racing against very seasoned, well-accomplished people. But at the end of the day, they're also seasoned, accomplished people. And it does take time, but you're 25, Aaliyah, you're 27. This shouldn't be either one of yours last cycle on this stage, which is an important thing to realize when you're talking about, Aaliyah, you touched in the first podcast about what it takes to change that mindset from being kind of a mid-pack runner to then being a winner and being willing to push yourself towards the front of that pace. It does take time. I'm new in this. You know, we, Ali and I come from similar backgrounds. It's like we're, we're constantly, we're fighting to notch up levels and then you have to get used to that level. I think we're both in that national competitive class now. And now it's about rising through those ranks and it's hard to do that. Immediately, it's easy to go from twenty nine forty to twenty eight twenty to some extent, but it's a lot harder to go from twenty eight twenty to competing for, you know, to, to competing with the best guys in the country in a championship style race. What I'm proud of of you in that moment is seven guys did drop out, good guys, um, some of which to save themselves for the five k, some of which it just wasn't going well. I think that was an important step as well. Even though it wasn't going well, you got lapped. But still, twice. Yeah, <laughs> got twice. But at the same time, God. you you were willing to put yourself through that for the experience of finishing the Olympic Trials 10K. Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, I wanted to drop out. Nobody wants to see the result that I had next to their name. It was sad when I was editing the previous podcast because you talked about the fear of going into Portland Track Festival and getting the pity clap coming down the home stretch. Yeah, and that's what I totally what I got in Eugene. Um, but it's okay. You know, like I was there. I earned my spot. It's twenty five laps. You know, the marathon's a different story, but it's a ten k, and I was physically intact enough that I could drag my corpse across that line. And Maybe so, you just wanted to soak up the experience. Yeah, I just I spent the most time on that track of anyone else, you know, <laughs> and I, I think I earned it. Uh, but no, man, like, it's just, I can finish. Like, I can suffer through 20 more minutes to get myself across the line, and my parents had come out there. A lot of people had contributed to them being out there. So there, I think there is some honor in finishing. I'm not one of those guys who's, like, finish at all costs no matter what, but there is some honor in finishing. Yeah, you don't want to be bullheaded if something were physically wrong, but yeah. it isn't. Exactly. Well, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Case yeah. in point, at least yeah. sitting to my Across right the here. table, case in point. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, um, understanding that that experience will serve you in the future. It's something also that you can kind of derive from and think back to of you don't want a repeat of that same type of experience. Totally. Now, post-trials, the race finishes. You were pretty devastated in the tent when Nelly and I found you and stayed with your parents that night. Um, you got back to Hayward, your first one back in Hayward the next day. Yeah, so I, I kind of texted you guys to see what your plans were because I very much wanted to, to rally to be there for Aaliyah because I felt like our week was not over until her race was over. So I wanted to like get my mind right before I saw you guys because... You know, no one wants to show up for their race and just see me just in tears in the tent. So anyway, it's like I, I showed up pretty early that morning and I just walked into the stands and just I just sat there for a while and just kind of pictured what had just happened and what it meant, you know, not just for what it meant that day, but what it meant for my life and where I had come from as a runner and like where I was going as a runner. Like that's really what I tried to focus on was like, 
you know, I don't know where it's, that is going to fit into the grand scheme of my career when I hang it up. Um, but it's, I think it'll be a pivotal moment and I wanted to sit there and acknowledge that that moment had happened, um, and try to be at peace with it before I moved on from my teammate and I moved on from myself because you can't dwell on that stuff too long. And I wanted to put it to bed as quickly as possible in the best way that I knew how. And Aaliyah, for you post-race, the first concern was making sure the foot's okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, the decision to actually stop running before the race has reached its duration is a really odd one. And, uh, like, I kind of touched on a little earlier, a, a bit foreign to me. And so I finally stepped off at one point on the back stretch and walked in. And, you know, there were people on the track that were there to make sure I was all right. Overall, it was, like, okay to walk on, but it just trying to run fast, composed. I think I explained to Richie, I'm like, I feel like it's just a wounded paw. Like, I felt a little bit like a wounded animal. And I've had other injuries in the past, but this was a really bizarre one where, yeah, you put your, literally, like, your foot, your landing point for where you run as a natural human being is just not, not fully there for you. So, yeah, I stepped off the track and watched... A good amount of the remainder of the race. But yeah, you stayed on the track to to watch it. I most you, of it, right? Because you walked back towards us. Yeah, I, I walked back towards towards the guys and saw saw Richie and Noah and saw Coach Vihill on the turn too and told them I'd chat with them in the tent. I wanted to see how the race was playing out, and I ended up leaving a little bit before the end when it looked like the top three women had kind of eventually showed their cards and just looked so dominant that I. You know, I still, I was sad that I was stepping out of the race, but I still really cared about so many of the women in that race and was genuinely interested that I didn't want to completely miss out on the moment just because I was upset or disappointed in my personal situation. Yeah, I think that goes, that speaks loudly a little bit about both of your self-awareness about the gravity of also the situation. You got hurt. It's easy to kind of run off the track and want to... Sulk. Sulk a little bit. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Noah, even though you obviously were having a not-so-great day, you were pretty aware of who was coming up behind you and making sure that you moved out so that they can go by on the inside. Very courteous. Yeah, (laughs) very courteous. But at the same time, like, you're still aware of what's happening around you and the importance of those that are still competing and having having a good day themselves. Post-race, Noah... You had quite the media attention. You got back that night, and your last name had gone viral on Twitter. Yeah. Which, for someone that finished not so great at the trials, was probably a once in a while. finished last at the trials. Yeah. You can say it. It's well, we, we, were, we were joking about it after the fact that you're probably the only person in the history of the Olympic trials to get the amount of media attention and exposure after the fact, finishing last in their respective event. Which is pretty impressive. Rupp wasn't tr- wasn't trending. You know? no, Rupp was not trending. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That was weird. It was a weird thing. Um, I got back to my. I stayed with my parents that night because um, we were kind of out late eating and stuff, and I just wanted you guys to do your own thing without me sulking around, to be honest. Um, but I plugged my phone in at the hotel, and it's going crazy. And I'm just kind of reading through them. I'm just reading the Twitter posts out loud um, to my family and my friend who was staying with us. And uh, we just laughed a lot. You know, I mean, they were they were all positive. Like, no one really said anything negative. And they were super creative. Yeah, so it, w- it was really fun to see that. You know, I didn't necessarily expect it or 
could have done without it. But it, it was really, it was fun. And it was, like, it was a good way to, like, take myself out of, like, the devastation of the moment and see, like, okay, people don't necessarily care about the results as much as I did. And they're having fun with it. And they found something they could relate to in it, maybe. And it helped me pull myself out of the situation and look at it from kind of a third-party perspective. And I think that was good for my healing process. Yeah, you now became the spirit animal for quite a few people on Twitter. Yeah. And the whole thing kind of took a few phases. Like, there was the initial Twitter reaction. Then there was the Runner's World article. Which got you quite a bit of attention as well. Yeah. And I appreciate that because it kind of shed some light on my story. And people got to know me as a person a little bit. Which I, I think goes more important to the fact of people complain all the time about why isn't running in general as a sport more more approachable to the general population. And every runner has a story. Every yeah. every everyone has a relatable point. It's just it's too bad that it's not on that platform more frequently. Yeah, and that's, like, what I tweeted, like, almost immediately because I want people to know that runner sets, like, I am not unique, you know? Like, maybe my my come from not being a great runner to now being an okay runner is fairly unique, but if circumstances had been different, and you're not going to find a runner who hasn't struggled at some point. Yeah. And so my story is not unique. That's why I was a little bit baffled about the attention it got. Like, I think some of it was my appearance, whatever. But every single athlete I've ever met has a story of struggle, and a lot of them are way better than mine. So I think that's where the, just the direction the sport needs to go in general is getting to know athletes better and introducing athletes to fans. Is that is that the sports problem, or is that the athletes not relating themselves to the population? It's both. It's both, but at some point, athletes need an outlet. you know. And I think we've seen like a few really good articles come out Recently, there was the piece on gags. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's Rochelle Canuho today. There's a piece today about Rochelle Canuho. Yeah. That story of struggle far exceeds mine. Yep. You know, will it get the same attention? Remains to be seen. It should. But every runner has that story. And the more we shed light on those stories, I think the more popular the sport gets. Yeah, I think it takes it takes certain personality and charisma to be able to relate to a large audience. But it also takes a certain marketability, whether that's from the athlete themselves, the support group that they're surrounded by, finding the right people to put them in touch with the news outlets to be able to distribute that to a wide audience. I think that's been made easier for me now with the media attention. There was the Runner's World article. My hometown paper put out a really good piece um, today. So, like, they are making it easy for me to tell my story um, because that audience is there Honestly, because of the way I looked at the trials, like that's where the audience came from, you know, not because I'm some amazing runner, like it's because I have long hair. And the ability to grow a mustache. And the ability to grow a mustache. Thanks, Dad. But yeah, I mean, athletes need to find a way to tell our stories without a prompt like that. How did, how did you feel you handled the media attention? I feel like it's been fine. I don't think it's really changed anything. Did you enjoy it or did it make you uncomfortable? I enjoyed it at first. Then there's a period of being uncomfortable with it because you feel like you don't deserve it. I finished last at the Olympic trials, dead last. And like you said in the interview, it's something you care very much about. It's not getting there was the goal. It's once you get there, what do you do with that opportunity? Yeah, I mean, I was shattered by that experience. So you feel like you don't deserve it. Um, But then at the end of the day, at the bottom of everything, it's like people are enjoying themselves through my story. 
I've heard a lot of people send me emails and messages like they find resonance and inspiration in that story. Um, quite, a, quite a few high school kids, too. Yeah, I've been hearing from a lot of high school kids. And so if it benefits anyone else in some way, so be it. That's cool. I'm for it. You know, like I said, it's not it's not a story unique to me. But if people can see that and they can relate to it and, like, know there's someone else out there who's maybe come from a similar background, cool. Like, if it benefits the sport, if it benefits people in the sport, that's fine with me. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was pretty neat seeing that type of media attention of regarding your story in particular, obviously, because we, we had a firsthand glimpse of the type of work that you were putting in over the past six months. And it's a story of our group. It, yeah. It's, it's not it's just very much. Story. It's I mean, a story of our unit. We're a, a very new, newly formed group that we don't have the same type of funding that some of these bigger groups did, but we also had two performers at the Olympic trials, which, which is huge for a new group. And I, I was, seen stuff even from a brand side like in 2012 hoka had zero athletes at the olympic trials and now they had 19 like it's something that does place a certain level of positivity surrounding what we're doing but it's also a a good jumping off point for what we're trying to work towards in the future and fortunately you guys have another four-year cycle ahead of you, but hopefully you're joined there with teammates in the future, which we have some very talented people coming in that potentially should be there with you. Yeah, it's nice that my story has been told, but it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of Aaliyah's story. Like it is, I think we're very much in the early stages of our stories. Um, so that's what's... And the group is in its infancy. Um, so that's what's most exciting to me about this whole experience, really. Aaliyah, what was it like for you kind of seeing him get that type of attention? I think the funny thing is I've, I've kind of joked around with him at practice before I'll show up and I'll be like, Noah, what are you wearing? Like, you look ridiculous. <laughs> He'll get kind of puffy with me and say like this, these are normal running clothes. Like, it's, it's a normal runner. People do like, this. No, you look ridiculous. And so to me, it was just funny that it had been captured on national television and that people had kind of actually run with it because he does have a, he does have a unique appearance and you know, we, we tend, we like the guy a lot and uh, have obviously really enjoyed having him as part of our group. It's fun to see a quirky personality. That's also, that's also hardworking. You know, he's, he's not cookie cutter, but it's not in like some rogue crazy way, you know? Yeah. It's not, it's not a front. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, I think Richie and I talked about too, that he was getting exposure for being exactly himself. Like they weren't necessarily making him out to completely be someone that he wasn't. And so that was the cool part of watching that, I think. And when I was talking with your hometown newspaper on Monday, the Indianapolis star, which came out with the article today. One of the things that I said that is really important to recognize is you're getting all of this media attention but you're also quick to give credit to your teammates, to the team, to the support group that helped put you in that spot, which is, it's hard for people to do in that moment when they're being bombarded by all these questions. It, 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 it's also a reflection back on your humility to a certain extent. Your humility, and here we are, you're wearing a trucker hat from a brewery that sent you a gift basket. Shout out Nkazi. Following being like a child. But you, you are... At the end of the day, the, the important point that we're trying to drive home is both of you have had a certain level of ex- success over the past two years, and you in a very short amount of time since you moved to Boulder in the past seven months. But 
there's a collective effort at work here. It's it's you going out to run the specific paces, but it's the support that Aliyah is showing you, that Tyler is showing you, that Mar is showing you out at practice. You being a very coachable athlete for me to give you those, and you're not arguing back with what what I'm assigning you, and running with it in confidence. The media exposure was fun. It was also fun to see you get that type of recognition based on who you are as a person. But I think it's also an important reflection of your character to also give credit to the support system that's surrounding you. I mean, I think you have to do that. It's never been just my story. Like, without you guys, I would be in Indiana doing exactly what I was doing last year, you know? Um, So for me, it's just like that's just the story. That is the story. Now, Leah, after the race, like we talked about, your first concern was the foot, so you got the MRI. And what did that show? I mean, uh, I can go over it too. But. Yeah. <laughs> so we we drove back. We drove back from Eugene. Richie and I drove back from Eugene to to Colorado, and I got an MRI. And luckily, it showed that there was no fracture. Which is some, yeah. We were pretty confident when we were looking at it that that wasn't the case. But it's always important to make sure. Right, and especially since the Olympic trials was such a big race, we we had kind of had tunnel vision through this race, and we're. At, up until this point, looking to see how it went before making future plans. And, and, and it did show inflammation in the ligaments surrounding the bone, which, again, shows that there was that partial dislocation of that bone. Right, and I think, in a weird way, made me feel a little bit better about dropping out because it was... It, a, a, it showed there was no fracture, which means that, hopefully, knock on wood, no long-term progression back from like a devastating injury and that Um, you can potentially turn around a little quicker this fall right that i can you know that it's not something that's hampering forward progress um other than this one really big race um but showing a little bit of inflammation there to me it shows like okay you're not you're not crazy like there is something there and potentially dropping out could have saved you from really hurting yourself noah after the olympic trials both of you got really sick we're sitting now two weeks post and I feel like I dodged a bullet because I did not get <laughs> sick and knock on wood that that doesn't be, that's not the case, but you got really sick first and then followed three to four days later, Aliyah, like you mentioned that sore throat, you woke up the next day following your race pretty under the weather. Yeah. It hit me like a, like a truck. Um, and we've been joking that Aliyah's just been about three days behind because she caught it after that. Yeah. it hit me And still hard. lingering for you, Aliyah. Oh yeah, yeah. That's, I, I sound a little a little hoarse. The people at home don't see us pausing for coughing fits. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's pretty comical here. When we have a system. A, they'll put up a finger when they're about to go into a coughing fit. I'll pause it. They'll cough, and then we'll continue where we left off. The powers of editing. The powers of editing. Yeah. But you went back to Indianapolis to run a local 5K, and that was a pretty important thing for you. Yeah. Well, we did go to Bend for a day too. Yeah, we did um, go to Bend. Yeah, and then, and then I went home back to Indianapolis um, to run the uh, Joseph Malley 5K, which is a, just a cool local event. It also serves as the uh, Indiana 5K Road Championships. And, and he they, puts on a good event. It's a great event, yeah. And he was nice enough to have me out. It's a flat, fast course through downtown Indianapolis. Uh, so just a super fun atmosphere. There's a band playing. There's all kinds of stuff. And so I did run it last year um, before I moved out to Boulder and all this happened. And, Where'd uh, you place? I was third, and I ran like 15.20 or 15.30. So I was just really happy to go back. How was the homecoming for you? It was awesome. My friends and family were just 
so proud of me. Um, and uh, they were just happy for what I had accomplished, even though the race hadn't gone the way I hoped it would. And I really wanted to do it for them. I wanted to run out the trials for them, and it didn't happen. But they didn't they didn't care, you know. They were just happy to see Noah again. And, uh, again, that helped me remove myself from that result. Yeah, was, I was uh, so happy, yeah. Like you said, I mean, they were just happy to see what you've been able to accomplish. But you were the first one in your college's history to have an Olympic trials athlete. Mm-hmm. which is a pretty neat accomplishment at the end of the day, too. Yeah, and my college coach came out to that 5K, um, which I don't even know if I even told you, um, just to come hang out and see me again and just kind of be there. So it was beautiful. It was a great It was a great thing. And that's something that, again, going back to kind of recognizing your support system, giving back to that local community type of event, because that has been a stepping stone catapult you to where you are today that's something i know that you've expressed you'd like to continue being able to to support assuming that we can obviously work it into the schedule yeah and uh you know people got a kick out of me being there like especially since that story was out i was taking pictures the high school kids got a kick out of it it wasn't necessarily a competitive opportunity but i don't think that's the end all be all of races sometimes which is something you and i were discussing before this podcast it's now the end of the olympic cycle so i'm like was it 88% of people that compete in the Olympic trials track events don't make the Olympics. A lot of people treat that as the end-all, be-all of their career, making the Olympics or not making the Olympics. And at the end of that four-year cycle, a lot of people start to reevaluate whether they made the right decision to pursue that for four years. Can they see themselves pursuing it for another four years? How do you guys feel about that perspective, or how do you treat that Olympic window versus pursuing running in general? I mean, personally, I just don't feel anywhere near done. And I I mean, I guess I just, I feel like such a young runner, even though I'm now four years removed from college, it doesn't feel like I've been out of college for four years. And I, I guess I just always remember back. I think the first week I was working with coach V Hill, one of the first things he told me, and he's an incredible motivator was just that he was going to teach me how to be a runner for life. You know, that we weren't this was literally just the beginning. I was going to be a runner for life. And I think that's a really big message to impart just to be, to be able to be successful. You can't just, I I don't personally think that you can view your running career as this teeny tiny snapshot because who knows when you're done, you know, we've seen it so many times over where, where people that are older kind of shock the world and they come back and are still competitive and maybe they're genetic mutations, but I didn't Bernard Lagat. Yeah, but, but the, you know, there are incredible stories out there, and I think that when you hear someone like Meb speak, you really just, it's so evident how much he loves the sport. He genuinely loves being a runner, and um, even, like, Dina Castor, too, she's, you know, she's maybe talked about retiring, but she also just loves running, and so I think when you love something like that, it's it's not a it's harder to see it as black and white, or I guess I wouldn't personally want to see it as black and white. To, to have the opportunity to not feel done with something that you love is a really big gift. Now, to play devil's advocate, it, I mean, we brought up the, the story of Johnny Dutch, who struggled through the last 30 meters, went from fourth, first to fifth, and missed out on going to the Olympics. It's got to be a different type of experience for a 400-meter hurdle runner versus a 5K, 10K marathoner that has opportunities in the offseason to still go and compete. That's a, that's a really good point. Yeah, does that change your perspective at all? Obviously, you guys are pursuing it because of the passion for running. 
it's got it's a much different avenue for them where spring is that season like disciplines aside like if he feels like he put everything he had and all of himself into this cycle and he just has no more to give it is absolutely his right to move on and do something else you know if he if he pursued it to the utmost of his ability and he came up short like regardless of it move on, you know, and do something else that you love. Because I don't think we have to pursue one passion single-mindedly for the rest of our lives, whether or not we're, you know, he might not be emotionally invested anymore. And that's when you have to step away from the sport. And maybe he comes back to it someday. That's That was the quote Tim Duncan just said in his New York Times article where he talked about retirement. And he's like, when I woke up and I realized I didn't love it anymore, I didn't want to do it anymore. And yeah. That was the time it was for me to step away. And who are we to judge that? You know, that's something that only he can know. Now, talking about the other events at the Olympic trials, who impressed you? Who was someone that, from a performance standpoint, showed a certain level of resilience, a certain level of moxie that you would kind of want to emulate in the future? Well, I one of my probably just favorite runners in general is uh, another one of Coach Hill's athletes, which is Brenda Martinez. Awesome person. Yeah, an, an, amazing, an amazing person. And... Um, just such, she has a really incredible story and such an example of hard work throughout her career just to get to where she is at this point as a, you know, a bronze medalist at the world stage. But let's um, also give credit to Carlos and Coach B. Hill because her support system obviously is incredible. Yeah, her support system is, is really, really strong. And, um, and she's, she's always touting her support system too, you know, for where she is today. But so, so Brenda is, is a world world-class middle distance runner for, for the U S and has been for a handful of years now. She was probably favored and was looking really great in the 800 meter final coming off the final turn and was mixed up in what ended up being kind of a big fall for a couple girls. And to the point where it even looks like she had a shot of, of winning the 800, you know, she went from looking like she could win it to just, you know, stumbling and flailing and completely losing all momentum. And it was heartbreaking to watch. I think, I think Noah and I, I know we were watching from the stands and it was really difficult to watch that. And so you, you just know how difficult that's got to be from an emotional standpoint, but she also had a 1500 meter qualifier. Those rounds had not started yet, but she essentially was able to remove herself from the 800 meter race, which was devastating after not making the team and regroup and run three more rounds of the 1500 yeah, she had six races in 10 days. Yeah, six races. Six, like, high-intensity races. High intensity. Just tough as nails racing. And, man, it was it was a race that was really rewarding to watch, too, is if you're a fan of her because it was down to the line. And it was her and Amanda Eccleston who ended up being fourth by just a fraction, fraction of time. Yeah, who just one. literally both dove. And you hear them both talking in the post-race interviews, and they're both incredibly well-spoken. And it's funny, neither of them talk about, like, thinking about the act of diving for the line. It's just this almost panic and just complete immersion in the moment of competing, just trying to do everything possible to get their body across the line as quickly as possible. And um, Brenda came up just, you know, a little bit, a little bit further ahead of Amanda. And I think that's just such a compelling story of, one, being able to control emotion after a really big blow. And two, just physically being able to endure it and then bring it all together for her first Olympic team. And someone different than Brenda. 
I don't know if there is someone different. Than <laughs> to be honest, like for me, it starts and ends with Brenda. Like yeah. as far as the story, uh, the comeback story of the trials. I mean, Ali and I watched that 800 when we saw her fly out into lane five. I just instinctively grabbed Aaliyah. And we were just, like, standing up there, just kind of shell I think all three of us wanted to jump on the track and, like, yeah, like, come on, give her a it. hug. And I, and I told Aaliyah, like, immediately, like, hey, you know, we had bad races for different reasons, but it puts our race into perspective because yeah. whoever was at fault for what happened in the 800, like, that's a tough card to draw. But then the resilience to come back in the 1500 was incredible. Just the, I mean, it's the mark of an amazing competitor. Yeah, her her quote after the race when talking about trying to get ready for the 1500 was, yeah, it hurts, but the track doesn't care about your feelings. Exactly. And there are a lot of people who may not have said that in their post-race interview. Or acted like it. Or acted like it. And she handled it with class, and she... she Didn't call anybody out. No, she got the job done. One one thing that really struck me watching that 800-meter final, too, was... It was such a devastating final for both her and Alicia Montano. And for us. Yeah, and, and for us emotionally <laughs> from the stands. But at, from, if, I guess from the fan perspective, I know what it feels like personally as an athlete to have a bad race and to be so absorbed in the moment of your bad race um, and to have maybe a hard time stepping out of it. But to be in the stands and see kind of a catastrophe happen on the track and then to see two minutes later the men were on the starting line, you know, and the world goes on and the meet goes on and um, it was a really interesting kind of outside looking in perspective that I, I'm not usually in the stands watching a meet like that. It just reminded you like, okay, no matter how difficult the situation is, you need to learn how to, of course, cope with the situation, but you need to learn how to move forward, you know, because ultimately everything like the world moves forward. And I thought it was really interesting too, when you were talking to Coach B Hill the morning after her race and you asked how Brenda's doing he was almost like shocked, like why you would even ask, like what do you mean? What do you she's, mean? She's fine. Yeah, yeah. she's got the fifteen hundred in yeah. two days. She's a tough girl. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's a. Uh, I mean, he's he's really he loves and cares about his athletes, but I think it is cool to see him. He to see him bank so heavily on you know he trusts her to still get the job done after something as disappointing as that, and that speaks volumes too. Speaks volume of his training. Yep. Yeah. To be able to come back from that and still yeah. be able to run strong against people that are fresh and ready to go. Yeah, absolutely. Six times. Six times. Tough girl. Yeah. Tough girl works hard. What were you disappointed in seeing? And that could not just be competitors. That could be events. Like, was there something that we talked about some of the positive things you guys both saw from Brenda that you could take away? Okay. So, like, one thing that we talked about in my race was like overemphasis on that particular moment. I don't like that we live in a sport governed by a four-year cycle. I think there are a lot of opportunities for competitiveness and personal fulfillment within that four-year cycle that often go ignored. Yeah, it's process, not end game. Exactly. And so not to talk about any individuals or anything like that, but to see someone give up on what could be a long-term dream because of how one four-year cycle or how one day within that four-year cycle panned out is disappointing to me as someone who loves the process of the sport. And these are people who have given everything for years leading up to this moment. And people you've looked up to, too. And people I've looked up to, but 
there is something else beyond Rio for those people. There's something else beyond Tokyo. You can have a successful career and never be an Olympian in the atmosphere of American track right now. Is the Olympics the pinnacle? Yeah. But does it have to be the thing by which we judge everything else? And I don't think it has to be. And so, th- so that maybe disappointed me a little bit to see people in the heat of the moment seem like they had given up all hope for a successful career because of the outcome of one race. Now, that, that also could be a testament, though, that they're maybe in the sport for not the best reasons. They have this talent. They feel like they're very good at it. It would be a shame to let that talent go to waste. So they'll do within the best of their ability what they can to achieve that goal. But if they don't achieve that goal, they're not willing to stick around another four years. But like you and I were discussing before, that's a very outcome-driven way of operating as opposed to enjoying the opportunity to go out and test your own ability and test your ability against somebody else's ability on any given race, whether that be the Olympic trials, the local 5K, the U.S. championships. And honestly, I think we can talk about Andrew Weeding here for a second. Two Olympics. He came into this Olympics off, you know, a pretty lackluster couple years. And in his pre-race interviews, he was like, I would love to go to a third Olympics, but really my goal this week is to go out and compete to the best of my ability. Whether that's a 335 race or it's a 340 race, I want to put myself in the mix. And so for him, getting to his third Olympics was not the end-all, be-all for him that weekend. It was about getting in there and being competitive and finding that drive again. And that's that's something I really respected out of him. And, it, you know, he didn't have a great race in the 1500 final. But, uh, but he also wasn't expected to make the 1500 final. He went into it with, I think, a good attitude of someone who may have a long-term focus rather than all emphasis. Because if he put all his emphasis on that one race, he's not in his peak form, as shown. He's a 330 guy. You know, if he walked off that line just totally devastated by his performance, we, nev- we may never see Andrew Weeding again. But I have hope that we can see Andrew Weeding again because of his mentality going into that race. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd agree with that. I think I think you see the ends of the spectrums as far as emotional emotional highs and lows go, you know, and you see it within the same races, within seconds of each other, you know, people realizing a dream and people feeling crushed by a dream that they felt like they were so close to that just slipped out of their grasp. And so it's it's just always interesting to see how different individuals handle those kind of, it's like a moment of truth, you know, how different individuals handle those moments. And, you know, I think it's hard not to dream about the way that you would handle a big moment. Mm -hmm. I don't think you want to think about how you would handle a really devastating moment. You know, if you were in third place and just got nipped at the line, to me, it was just a really good, I guess, learning experience where, like Richie had said, you, you see some people that really carry themselves with a certain amount of dignity and grace, I would say. And then you see others that have a that may struggle a little bit more in those moments. And I guess I hope that I, I'm preparing myself as an athlete for when I get to those, the good and the bad, because I know they're both coming, that I'm a little bit more prepared. Now looking ahead to fall, know what's on tap for you coming up? Um, I mean, I think you and I are still kind of piecing that together a little bit. Uh, Ten-mile championships are on there. Uh, <clears throat> a couple half marathons late fall. Uh, early winter club cross country club cross country is what i'm really excited about <laughs> as our uh, as our men's team kind of comes into full form over the next couple months um 
It's what I'm really excited about. So, there, yeah, you know, I'm over. I'm getting over the trials still. Um, and I'm really looking forward to what's coming up because uh, now I feel like we can really get after it. And, Elia, I know you and I have kind of talked about it a little bit off microphone, um, but you're still trying to figure out your fall. And some of that will be you start back into workouts this next week and see how the body is going to respond, whether you're fully over being sick, whether the foot's ready to go. Um, that'll <laughs> yeah. kind of be the indicator of how your fall shakes out. Yeah. Yeah. And I talked to coach V Hill today and I think I'm always, or not always, but I think it's not uncommon for the athlete to be a little bit over eager. And I was so excited to tell him how good my foot felt and that it wasn't hurting and I had been able to run. And he was like, okay, well that's great news, but you know, let's, it's taken another four days, even just like four more days of easy running to make sure it's okay. Even though the image came back clean without a fracture, we're still just being careful to make sure that I would like to jump back into training. And I think that hopefully we can to a certain extent, but we're also making sure to give things some time so that we're, we're really not jumping the gun. And we can say with 90% certainty, can't say 100% certainty because it's hard to do that in the sport. But 90% certainty you'll be back on the track next spring. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think I – I think my, my long-term progress will be in the marathon. But I, I still love track. And I think to be a good marathoner, you you still need to be able to step on the track and run a respectable 10K. And so I'll continue to try to lower PRs in the 5 and the 10 because I think that will ultimately help the package as an overall athlete. Now, we'll leave with we're about to see our group grow. You guys are two people that have been kind of here from the start. What does it mean to you to kind of take on more of that leadership role now? Yeah, um, there's a little bit of nerves whenever something starts to change. Um, but that said, like we've been talking about it all along, like the group, the group is the story. Um, I in college, I loved being part of a unit and like building that unit and seeing it progress over years. And that's what I'm excited to do here, too, uh, to bring people into our system, to watch them adapt, to mentor however I am able, and to be part of something that strives to be great. Um, And it's a fine balance because we're trying to bring in personalities that will mesh and blend well with your guys. It's not just about talent at the end of the day, which is why I value your opinion on the guy's side, Tyler's opinion on the guy's side, and Mara's opinion on the girl's side to make sure that the athletes we, were, we are bringing in are ones that we would feel comfortable with having on a daily basis. Yeah, and that's exactly right. It's not all about talent and times on paper. It's about putting together a group we can be proud of, and we're not going to get every decision right. Like, I think we, we can listen to this a year from now, and we'll be able to identify a lot of decisions that we got wrong. Um, but I'm confident. In, but hopefully mostly right. Hopefully mostly right. <laughs> but yeah, it's never smooth, but like, I'm so confident in the heads at this table and the other people we have in our group right now that we're going to be in a better place a year from now than we are now. And you kind of talked about yourself in that leadership role, Leah, similar to like we mentioned Brenda earlier, you kind of find yourself kind of starting to become a Brenda for our group, not at the same what a poor man's what a Brenda. Compliment. Yeah, not <laughs> the same sort of achievement that she's been able to establish quite yet, but um, something that we, you are having to kind of take on that like veteran athlete to well, a certain extent. Yeah, I guess the funny thing is, I for a while I felt like that leadership role didn't 
belonged to me partially because I hadn't achieved the status of like a Brenda or you look at the Mammoth Track Club with Dina Castor, like they're such obvious leaders just because of their their resume. And I'm I'm very proud of what I've done to this extent and really think I have a lot more, but I'm not I'm not someone that people would list on list as a world class athlete just yet, you know. Um and so I think I was surprised and maybe a little bit flattered to feel like like yeah, I did have more of a leadership role here and that I had some of that to offer to the group. Um what it really wasn't something that I had thought about beforehand, but it's, I think it's always fun when people come and ask you, ask for advice, you know, it's, it's a nice feeling to be leaned on. And I think it opens the door too to when you need it as well, that they're a little bit more likely to respond to be that shoulder for you too. All right. Now, and if people want to follow along with your guys' story, how can they find you on social media? Um, I am on Twitter and Instagram. What are your handles? My Twitter handle is Aaliyah T. Gray, A-L-I-A. Um, and then my Instagram handle is just Aaliyah Gray, all one word. And I am on, I guess, just Twitter at the moment. Um, you can find me at I Built the Ark, as in Brother Noah Built the Ark. Um, and uh, pictures of me are on the Roots Running Instagram. All right. Thank you guys for listening, and thank you both for doing a follow-up as painful or as enjoyable as that may have been. Absolutely. Thanks. (laughs)